Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive, like their ABMP podcast, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. Even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Bodywork magazine, where Whitney and I, Teluca, are frequent contributors, and special offers for thinking practitioner listeners at abmp.com slash thinking. Hey, Whitney, how you doing there? Very well, sir. How are you doing today? I'm also good. I've been looking forward to our conversation. This is a, a perennial topic, you could say. This is something that one of those that doesn't seem to go away, even though it's at different times some of us wished it would, maybe. I don't ah, know about you. Yes. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm, I've actually been looking forward to the topic because I want to get your take on it. And I got a, a couple updated ideas I want to share too. What are we talking about today, Whitney? Um, I believe we're talking about the iliotibial band today. So oh, yeah. Fascinating facets of the ITB. And so it's fascinating facets. And there uh, are some controversies around it, I think. What? What would you say about that? What are those, Whitney? Yeah, you know, uh, if you kind of cruise through some of the social media posts, the research literature, and the, the the buzz around the ITB, you're likely to come across some significant um, disagreements and debates around there. There are some controversies around the ITB. There's, for example, uh, you know, I and I think some of this emanates out of the fact that it just comes from palpatory analysis of the fact that we're always taught as manual therapists to try to soften tissues all the time. Uh, and the ITB feels really hard most of the time on people. So there's there controversies you around, you know, can we stretch it? Can we make it softer? Can we uh, elongate it with manual therapy? Those are some of the even, things that we hear a lot about. I yeah. Think. Is it even physically possible? You're asking. Yeah. And you're also yeah. saying something interesting. You're saying that just because we feel something hard as manual therapists in our hand, can we soften it? And I think you're implying, should we? Yeah, even? that's a big question. Uh, I mean, for years, I know early on when I was taught a lot about this stuff, and I kind of taught some of this early on too, it was this idea of like, well, we're working on the soft tissues of the body, so they should be soft, right? Um, and the reality is some of them aren't meant to be soft. And uh, I fall on the on the side of the fence that's saying, you know, uh, I think we've been overdoing it with trying to do things to the iliotibial band. Um, you draw so, a hard line around that, do you? Yeah. So Around softening. Mm -hmm. But in any case, uh, there's also the fact that for massage therapists, other sorts of manual therapists, for sure, we feel things, quote, soften with our hands and people feel better. Yeah. And it's just on a really simplistic, maybe almost unconscious level, we start to assume, and I think a lot of our models did or have assumed that just softening it is improving it. Yeah. Right. And then, so that leads to that thing you were talking about, like, if I feel something hard, then it's a problem and I should soften it. So yeah, yeah. the controversies are, can we, and should we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a question that comes yeah. up that, uh, you know, certainly came up for me, and we'll explore this in a little bit more detail when we look at this uh, anatomically, I've sort of wondered years down the road, 
when we felt changes in that aspect of the lateral thigh when we were working at it, did we actually even change the iliotibial band or are we changing the vastus lateralis, which goes all the way underneath it? And it uh, definitely is a tissue much more responsive to um, changes in sensation than we might be feeling in the in the iliotibial this lateralis band. underneath yeah. it, the foundation, the muscular foundation we're feeling underneath that. Interesting. Yeah. And then our guest last episode, Robert Schleip, talked about this some. He gave a couple of views on what might be happening mm-hmm. when it feels softening. He also described it, interestingly, as a North American social media controversy. Yeah, which I where, thought that was interesting. So um, no, <laughs> I had to chuckle. I had to yeah. chuckle. And I think it. I think there's something to that, perhaps, that certainly is controversial on social media. I think maybe that might extend to our friends in Australia, because I know that's been controversial there as well. Yeah, But I think probably there are certain subcultures where these questions are more hotly debated than others, perhaps. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah, that certainly could be. Okay, so what, and we're going to we're gonna share our views on those controversies, I think, as we go along. Is that right? Because I want yeah. to hear what you think about that. Yeah. But do you want to tell us something about what it is first? What is that iliotibial band? Yeah, so, you know, an interesting thing uh, I noticed for me, this was really... Um, one of the most fascinating things that I sort of learned and first saw the first time I was in a cadaver lab, I was quite astonished and taken aback by how thin the iliotibial band is mm. um, in a lot of people. Because the anatomy books, um, with a, a number of different things, but the anatomy books, anatomy books can sometimes tend to mislead us a little bit about what things really look like. Because it, it always is illustrated as this big, thick mass going down the side of the thigh. And uh you know, I was uh, quite surprised how thin it actually is. A discrete band of fibers that has yeah. colored different than things around it is how it looks in, say, netter or things like that. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think leads to uh, the first thing that I want to talk about, misunderstanding in relation to the iliotibial band or or maybe lack of understanding around it, uh, is that it isn't really so much a discrete band by itself, but it is actually part of a cylinder of fascial connective tissue that surrounds the entire thigh called the fascia lata. And so uh, there really is a, you really want to think about it as like maybe one section of the sidewall of this fender, a cylinder, which is a lot thicker, but it's part of that whole connective tissue cylinder surrounding the thigh. Um, so like a stocking or like a uh, yeah. wrapping of the leg and then the iliotibial yeah. band would be the fibrous portion of it. Yeah, I like that analogy. So maybe you got a stocking and you spray some, you know, uh, sticky kind of firm stuff on a, one side of the stocking and it gets stiffer and stronger than the rest of the soft stocking, stocking around there. So nice. Um, is it is it fluorescent colored, the stuff we're spraying on our stockings? Oh, yeah. Or? Yeah. Okay. That's right. And the I IT like band it. is also fluorescent. Uh, you may not know this, but you can glow it that's in the dark sometimes. That's why we can see it so well in dissection. <laughs> Okay. Now, are you familiar I, with the idea? Caveat, the, that I mean, is not true for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. That's right. So anyway, uh, are you familiar with this idea that the, uh, the iliotibial band is a T-shaped structure uh, and seen in cross-section? No. Tell me about that. Um, not... Well, I gosh, I got to pull up the reference and I'll put it in the show notes because I know that this was an actual 
study. Oh, yeah. We're talking about like the anatomical attachments like to the linea aspera down the femur and everything Correct. like that. That's right. Yeah. Tell us That's about right. that. Yeah. Well, the, it's basically, again, we think about it as a stripe painted on the side of our stocking. Mm -hmm. But if you can if you do a cross section of the femur, you can see that it actually is contiguous with the septum that goes down between the muscles and attaches to the femur along yeah. its whole length. So it's not right. just like a discrete band floating out there on the edge of your uh, thigh. It's actually a T-shaped structure that's attached to the femur yeah. for its whole length. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, a couple of the resources that I was reading some stuff on iliotibial bands spoke about the upper portion of it acting more tendinous and the lower portion of it acting more ligamentous. So for example, the uh, as you noted, the connections over to the femur may have a lot more to do with transmission of forces from gluteus maximus and tensor fasciolata to the femur in the upper portion of the thigh and the lower portion of the IT band acting more like a ligament in a stabilizing ligament. the knee um, mm, and during nice. various activities, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But yeah, that's, that's fascinating as well. Yes. And then I've actually read the opposite where they wonder about, I think you're going to tell us some about uh, pain around the lateral knee, that being due to say tendon-like responses in the iliotibial band itself, as well as some other things around it, which I hope you'll tell us about as well. Yeah. So uh, um, what else here on anatomical things? So generally in most anatomy books, um, the distal attachment of the iliotibial band is noted as Gertie's tubercle on the tibia, Gertie, G-E-R-D-Y, Gertie's tubercle on the tibia. Hey, do you know who Gertie was, by the way? You're you got you got me, and that's no, again. This is too. I don't know. I was just curious if you knew. Well, and this is different than what I just said about it being attached to the whole length. You're saying that there yeah. is a classical attachment. You can look up Gertie's tubercle on the tibia, and it's the distal, uh, the distal yeah. end of that, obviously, which it attaches on across the right. knee. Yeah. Okay, so we would consider that as probably one place where a bunch of the lower portions of the IT band attach. But as you noted, that's not the only place at all. It's along the whole length of the. Uh, femur, there's connections into the femur itself, as well as there are fascial connections in with some of the patellar retinaculum. So um, we got to remember these things aren't just one small discrete location, but there's uh, uh, other ways in which those forces are dispersed along the length of that iliotibial band to other adjacent structures there. Things are connected, especially yeah. as we start to talk about, uh, I mean, it's interesting, the iliotibial band is a fascial structure that has a name. There are fewer of those, perhaps, than muscles. I wonder if we added up the number of named fascial structures and the name muscles, how the... How uh, I think compare. it would be far less than the number of muscles, probably. Yeah, thank you yeah, for yeah. confirming my guess yeah. around that. So, But that's the problem with naming fascial structures, of course. They, they're they connective tissue, and so they connect everything. Yeah. And it's hard to draw the line and say, okay, here's where this starts and it stops. Yeah. And hopefully, as we you know delve deeper into some biomechanical research in the future, we can you know one of the things that I've always been fascinated with as we look at all these connections is having a better understanding of what percentage of load is transmitted to all of these different places. So, for example, you know you talk about Gertie's tubercle being the main location where the IT band connects, but if you look at some of the biomechanical studies about the function of iliotibial band, they're talking about tensile loads changing with different angles of knee flexion. So it's more on the anterior fibers in certain knee positions and more on the posterior fibers in other knee positions. So um, yes. curious to know more about that as we learn more about the function of those connective tissues. Uh, and you're talking about knee positions, meaning degree of flexion or extension of the knee? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, because then there's abduction, adduction of the hip too, which is yeah. thought to change the forces going through that structure. Yep, absolutely. As does, you know, knee positions. And I think you'll mention a few things about this too with genu valgum and genu verum, the knock kneed or bow-legged position. So if you imagine in particular a bow-legged individual, which is referred to as genu verum, that IT band is a bit more bowstrung around the outside edge of the thigh and knee in a genu verum position, excuse me, yeah, a genu verum position than uh, the bow-legged position. So mm-hmm. those static positions, in addition to gait mechanics, can certainly have a uh, an effect on, on ITB uh, force well, distribution. Is it time to bring in a point of view yet? Yeah, let's do. Uh, so you're, what you're saying there is the bowstrung idea that if mm-hmm. if um, you know your knock knee or bow legged, your iliotibial band will have a different tension to it or have a different contributor there. Mm-hmm. But the idea that if it's tight, it might actually bow your leg sideways and give you like a valgus pattern, like a knock kneed pattern. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I assumed that I, you know, as rolfers, especially we were really looking at what didn't lengthen, what was short and how that tensegrity model of the tension and compression forces could be balancing out across the joint, like the knee. There's something to that. And yet it has liberated my thinking and helped me drop another level in my understanding, I think, to question that assumption, mm-hmm. to say that just because a knee is valgus, is that iliotibial band tighter, in quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that dovetails with the question of like, uh, you know, should we even stretch it? The other point of view being, well, maybe if it's tight, it's because it's helpful for it to be, quote, tight. Maybe it's a spring more than, say, a muscle that's not relaxing. Yeah. And in fact, a number of the, the uh, studies that are looking at uh, iliotibial band function say that, that it does appear to be playing a very prominent role in knee stability during certain phases of gait, especially in the deceleration phases of the, of the stance um, portion of gait. So That makes um, a whole that, lot of sense to me. Yeah, that seems to reinforce the idea that it, it's really meant to be tight with tension on it to help in, in stabilizing the knee in certain activities. This is, it makes sense to me because I was just walking down a steep mountain with a backpack on Mm -hmm. and stepped around a bush and did a funny little thing and kind of almost went down into my knees and had to decelerate that uh, forced kneeling thing. And that's that's like right where I felt it, right in that lateral knee thing. So it was like helping me stabilize that moment in time. I'm curious, after that point, did you continue to have discomfort in that knee as you continued to go downhill? It was sensitized. I could, yeah. you know, I, I kind of walked it off as it were, but I could feel like, okay, that got a little unhappy, you know, minor strain or a little aggravation in there. Yeah. No lasting effects at all, but it definitely lit it up in my awareness for a little while. Yeah. And another uh, interesting hill walking story, um, uh, ITB friction, and we'll talk about this problem a little bit later on here, but, you know, lateral knee pain with the ITB, as we noted, is is frequently associated with either running or walking activities, but especially the deceleration phase going downhill. Yeah. And I was hiking with a friend of mine. Uh, we were hiking up South Sister, which is a mountain um, nearby us, about 10,000 feet. So it's a pretty good climb up there. And uh, we were no longer spring chickens. You know, we were a little bit uh, farther down the road of, of uh, season, aged experience. What season of chicken were you? Were you? <laughs> I'm thinking when this happened, uh, I was probably uh, late, mid to late 40s or something like that. My friend was was a little bit older than me. So um, 
Anyway, we hiked up the mountain and on the way down, he began to have just a screaming case of ITB friction syndrome, you know, lateral knee pain. Uh -huh. And I had learned this in a orthopedic clinic when I was working years ago. And I said to this guy, you know, look, I know this is going to sound really weird and you're probably going <laughs> to um, uh, tell me I'm a nutcase for doing this and, and trying to do that. But if you want to get down this hill without uh, as much severe knee pain, if you walk backwards, you won't feel that knee pain <laughs> because it changes the mechanics of the way it loads the IT. <laughs> and he yeah. did walk probably halfway down the rest of this mountain backwards. Um, if it hurts, you would. Yeah. Did you have him put so, his backpack on his front? Luckily, we were just day hiking. So yeah, okay. he wasn't carrying a, a load, wasn't carrying heavy <laughs> That's backpack. That's good. Yeah. Well, that would totally change the dynamics, wouldn't it? Yeah. So uh, if you're a person with ITB friction or lateral knee pain from iliotibial band and you're wanting to continue your activities, just turn around and do it backwards. It may change it for you. Is, I but, mean, you got you know a lot about this ITB friction thing. Do you want to jump into that? Or is there anything more you want to tell us about? Yeah. Uh, so I think we kind of covered a lot of the, the main things that we were um, focusing on with anatomy. So let's talk about some of those things that how the ITB is frequently involved with certain types of, of pain complaints. So I keep mentioning this thing with ITB friction syndrome. It is a, a condition that does tend to affect quite a number of people, especially if you're runners or doing you know active work. Some of the studies about it indicated anywhere from 12 to 16 percent. I saw as numbers for uh, the number of people who developed this lateral knee pain from iliotibial band involvement in uh, people who are runners. So a pretty common thing. It's um, often reported as like the second most common running overuse injury. So okay, so now yeah. that's I just to throw in. Assumption of mine, not based on much. I I work here in the Boulder area, and we have a lot of athletes, a lot of runners, mm -hmm. and I somewhere l got the idea that it's it's mileage dependent. That you get it more frequently in high mileage runners. You know, it's more common say in, in marathoners than others, and that in my estimation, it's not that common anybody else. Uh huh. That seems to be a high mileage runner thing. Is that? Does that fit with what you know? I or? don't know if that is uh, supported by the uh, the literature of how frequently it occurs, but I would that would make sense to me because it does tend to be an overuse injury of repetitive loading on those structures. So the longer your mileage is, it would seem the more likely you would be to develop that. People don't uh, get it sitting around listening to podcasts, for example. Tend to not do that, yeah. Unless they're right. in a very awkward chair position and, and leaning on their lateral knee region and irritating we should that. Do, so. We should do an episode on podcast injuries or pod, uh -huh. podcast risks. Yeah, that'd be anyway, a, a good one. So, yeah. This one won't be on the list, so let's make sure we cover it today. What else about ITB friction syndrome? Yeah, so a couple other things here, and this kind of goes back to anatomy for just a second. Uh, the iliotibial band friction uh, historically was somewhat blamed on irritation of a bursa underneath the distal iliotibial band. So there was suggestion that there was a bursa that was getting squeezed between the distal iliotibial band and the lateral epicondyle of the femur during repeated flexion and extension movements. So during flexion and extension, the iliotibial band would rub back and forth across that um, greater, uh, excuse me, uh, lateral epicondyle of the femur yeah. and the bursa underneath there would become inflamed and irritated. But um, a couple of recent anatomical studies have called that into question, mm -hmm. saying that they, in fact, did not find a true bursa underneath mm -hmm. the distal iliotibial band, but instead found a fat pad under there, which tended to be richly innervated. And it was uh, an irritation of that sensitized fat pad that was likely 
causing some of the um, the uh, lateral knee pain uh, from from the activities there. There was you know, there, yeah, there was a lot about this say five six years ago when this was coming out. Do you, does that change the way you approach it at all, Whitney? Not really, because I, yeah, my perspective on addressing this is still kind of the same. Of like, let's see what we can do to reduce the load on there. So, yeah. um, one of the things that's interesting for uh, for understanding some of the more fine points of the biomechanics there is is a recognition and understanding of something called the screw home mechanism of the knee. Mm. So, um, when you move your knee in flexion and extension, it isn't a pure sagittal plane movement of just moving straight forward and back. And this has to do with the difference in size of the femoral condyles with the mm -hmm. medial condyle of the femur being a little bit larger than the lateral femoral condyle. And as a result of that, during the very end of extension, usually about the last 30 degrees of extension, the tibia rotates externally and it sort of locks mm. into position. And we call that the screw home mechanism. So external at, rotation on extension, the two E's. Yes. That's how and I again, to clarify, that is external rotation of the tibia yeah. in relation to the femur in what we call an open chain position, which means the, uh -huh. the body is not weight bearing. If yes. you are weight bearing, the reverse will occur, which is essentially, and it's a, uh, this is a weight bearing position is called a, called a closed chain position. So if you are with your feet on the ground and standing up straight from a bent position, that's the, you know, your knee is moving into extension, but because the foot is firmly on the ground, the tibia won't rotate. Instead, the femur will internally rotate at the very end of that movement. So it's so our term. Yeah. Our terminology is the opposite. The movement is actually the same. The movement is the same and the terminology of how we reference it is, is somewhat different there. So yeah. now Good the point. reason that that's important is during, ex, during flexion movements of the knee. And this is what tends to happen as you noted during the downhill portion of that stance where you're decelerating your body, your knee is moving slightly into flexion. So as your knee moves into flexion, the tibia internally or medially rotates. And as it does, it pulls Gertie's tubercle around toward the midline of the body. And that oh, I increases. Feel it. Yeah. I, I can feel it in my left knee as you describe it. Yes. That's that increases the tensile load on the entire, entire iliotibial band. And then consequently, anything on the lateral side of the, the knee gets uh, compressed actually against the bone in that position because you're sort of pulling those tissues taut across the protruding epicondyles. Stretching and wrapping yeah. around those bony prominences. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is one of the things as, as the uh, anatomists look at the, looked at this and the, and the biomechanical specialists look at, looked at this process, it changed at least some people's idea of the primary aspect of this pathology um, also, as you mentioned earlier, these um, anatomical connections from the iliotibial band to the femur make it less likely that the iliotibial band is rubbing back and forth across the femoral condyle because it's firmly anchored down there to the femur along its line. So there's not as much, you know, side to side movement across the, the lateral epicondyles we might have once thought. But yeah. there is a change in compression and relief of compression, compression, relief of tension, compre uh, compression, relief of compression during that flexion and extension cycle. And that may be what's irritating the underlying fat pad underneath there during those movements. And maybe there's just a little bit of that rubbing back and forth across, just maybe not as much as we originally thought. 
Well, and I think most, this was a big, uh, say, maybe it was a social media, I mean, it was more of a Twitter battle, but there was a lot of controversy around this question of, is it compression or is it friction? Is that band sliding around, which was the conventional story, or is it a compression of the taut band pulling against the bony landmarks? Yeah. And most of those discussions that resolved at least came to the idea of, well, maybe it's some of both, or maybe it doesn't matter. But there's an irritation for sure, and it's pain there for sure, with yeah. probably uh, compression factors and maybe friction factors as well, although yeah. less perhaps than conventionally thought. It did, by the way, that did change the way I approached that uh, lateral knee pain there. So how does that change for you? Tell well, me about that. when I was thinking about the bowstring analogy, like let's say that long band, as I imagined it, at a netter crossing the knee there, and a compression there getting wrapped around the bony prominences, I would logically then want to, quote, lengthen the band or help mm -hmm. it be less taut so it pulled against those uh, prominences less acutely. Yeah. If I start to think about it like a local irritation, perhaps, and especially with this idea that maybe it's attached along the whole femur, then it then it becomes more about local tissue response, sensitivity, and maybe hydration. So that my work, uh, realizing that the classic work of just uh, say rolling the iliotibial band, or even like with a forearm snow plowing down the side of your leg there, uh, maybe that's less, there's less of a clear rationale for that than there would be for a lifting or a skin rolling, or even a hydrating idea of, of uh, opening up the layers there to let fluids perfuse the zone and help resolve any inf local inflammation in the fat pad there or in the subcutaneous layers and maybe increase tissue hydration so that there's more slide. So even if there is a friction aspect, maybe that stimulation of hyaluronic acid production with um, fibro, you know, the fasciocytes or something like that, whatever we're doing through either stretching or lifting, maybe that actually increases the tissue glide. So there's mm -hmm. less of the potential for friction as well as less of that inflammatory reactivity. Yeah. So it kind of gets back to us talking about... Um, maybe trying to create the ideal environment for optimum function of, of those tissues. And, and like you said, making a little bit more capability for some, the, the necessary level of appropriate slide and glide, but, but still maybe kind of, at least for me, my perspective is migrating away from this idea that we're doing something to the band and yeah. making the band more extensible. Because if you go back and think about this mechanically, uh -huh. The purpose, the primary functional purpose of the iliotibial band is to maintain and increase knee stability, which means it has to pull on something firmly to transmit those tensile loads around the knee. And if something is really extensible and able to elongate from uh, some forces applied to it, especially those kind of forces that we might apply with manual therapy, uh, then it's going to be far less efficient at transmitting that tensile load down there to stabilize the knee. So um, right. It seems like you it's don't really... want rubber bands around your knee. You don't want rubber yeah. bands around your knee. You want something firm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want stability. cables. Yeah. Cables. Yep. So, um, but it it has certainly spawned the uh, a, a profusion of commercial um, activities with things to do stuff to the iliotibial band, whether that's you know foam rollers or you know massage tools or all kinds of things that uh, people do advocate to try to work this band and soften it up. That's, that's still quite a, 
quite a thing out there. And maybe that is uh, the North American social media phenomenon that uh, Robert Schleip was referring to, possibly. Well, yeah, could be. But I, okay. Um, hmm. How much should I get into this? I mean, maybe the rationale of lengthening the band isn't really uh, one that I go by in my work. Mm-hmm. But that is a sensitive structure. The yeah. entire side of the leg, and especially down at that distal end around the fat pad or whatever, highly innervated, highly sensitive. And it's sensitive in my mind because it senses. It's our lateral sensor. It's mm-hmm. the thing that tells us what our knee is doing, what our hip is doing, what our whole body is doing, and standing, walking, running, etc. Yeah. And so there's ways that as a sensor, as a as a you know, musculoskeletal fascial sensor, I'm really interested in bringing it into the body schema through mm-hmm. my work. Yeah. And sensation is one way I do that. Sensation is my paintbrush for the paintings I draw on the client's brain, as it were, yeah. or the way I recolor their irritated zones of their brain or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So sensation is useful and it's a really sensitive structure. Uh, I will work it. But again, it's different purpose. They're a different idea. I'm not thinking of stretching it like a band. I'm thinking about using its sensitivity to talk to the brain, to normalize the brain's reactivity or responsiveness to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And interestingly, along those same lines, one of the studies that I was reading was uh, referencing a very high number of, of sensory receptor cells in that fat pad underneath yes. the iliotibial band that was reading levels of compression of the band uh, against the knee. And that's probably doing some things to help monitor the overall tension levels on that. And, you know, I think we touched on this earlier, but I just want to reiterate uh, for everybody thinking about the band, really that the monitor that's changing those levels is the tensor fascia lata and gluteus maximus muscles. They're the ones that are giving the main pulling force to the upper level of the band that we can perhaps alter and change that may alter and change the level of, of tensile load on that band. Okay. So yeah, you're saying if we are interested in changing the compression forces there at the knee by reducing the tension on the band, maybe the muscle components, the upper end are the places to think about. Yeah, that, that fits with my thinking and my approach too, for sure. Yeah, that seems to me to be the most likely place where we can make an intervention and and have some some kind of uh, effects in there. In fact, I'm seeing that we should, uh, this is a good opportunity, we should mention the handout we're putting together for this episode. And one of the things I'm going to put in there for sure is a tensor fascia lata technique with just that idea in mind that we're actually changing the thing that pulls on the, the band-like structures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that'd be one of the things I'll put in my the handout for my side. Yeah, excellent. So, and I think I've got a couple of things I was going to put in there uh, as well. So the, that certainly that'll be helpful for uh, elaborating on some of these ideas. Absolutely. So, yeah. What else you got, Whitney? What else you want to talk about? Well, a couple of the things that I want to mention just briefly. Um, a couple of things in particular that mimic iliotibial band pain and are often mistaken for uh, ITB pain that people may jump in and try to do something about that uh, Uh can have pain in that area. And and I'm always a big one on trying to distinguish and identify, you know, what the primary cause is whenever we can so that we don't, uh, for example, do something inappropriate or we miss the mark and we're ineffective because we missed what was happening there. So a couple things I was just going to highlight here. Uh, There is a pretty, uh, well, there's a couple bursa just uh, on the lateral aspect of the hip, the trochanteric bursa. Uh, in between gluteus medius and the uh, the femur, as well as gluteus maximus and the femur. And those bursa can become inflamed and irritated and cause lateral hip pain that may be mistaken for iliotibial band pain. 
Um, Especially if you scrimped on your camping pad from REI and you got a yep. tooth in a pad and you're sleeping on your side on the ground. And you're a side sleeper. So that sounds like something from uh, experience there that you have. Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. and here in Colorado, I mean, I can't, there's been more than a few people uh, and it tends to be age related. Those of us, as you know, the years go by, get more sensitive to sleeping on our sides, on hard surfaces, or that side of the hip seems to get more easily irritated from that, from just the direct pressure there, yeah. probably on those bristle structures that you're talking about. Right. So that would be one, hopefully we would pick a lot of that up in, in a history of something doing some kind of activity would cause, you know, pain and discomfort out there. There's also, you know, some of the trigger point referral patterns from especially gluteal muscles, hip and gluteal muscles that may also refer down to the lateral aspect of the thigh and be mistaken for kind of uh, aching kinds of pain along the iliotibial band region themselves. And, you know, I know sometimes I used to do this very early on before I learned a little bit more about the anatomy and mechanics. They would just try to go in and work all those areas where the pain was being felt. And that was just probably irritating some of the IT band because it's really, you know, it's just, it's sensitive all along its whole length there to much pressure from, from. Okay. So things. this yeah. is important. You're saying that sometimes you could, uh, somebody could feel pain, let's say in their lateral thigh, iliotibial band, and by working it, you could irritate it or make it worse. And maybe that pain is a referral pattern, you're saying, from gluteal structures. Yeah, right. So you could kind of sensitize some of the, the neural receptors in that area from working something. And, and especially if you, you know, kind of take this attitude like, well, yeah, it's going to hurt good now, but we'll work this stuff out and we'll soften it up later on when that may not necessarily be occurring in there. So, Which is also an unhelpful assumption if there is any kind of inflammatory reactivity going on too. Yeah. Like if there yeah. is some of that fat pad irritation or other sorts of things happening there yeah. or a strain of tissue strain. Mm -hmm. Again, it might feel really good in quotes because it's giving some strong sensation there in the moment. But the question is what happens later? Does that yeah. help it resolve or does it keep it irritated? Which by the way, I got to stick this in. Sorry. This is one of the objections say, to foam rolling or one of the concerns about foam rolling I, for one, the mechanical plausibility was questioned. Can you lengthen? If your goal was to try to lengthen the iliotibial band, can you do it with a roller? Mm -hmm. uh, or even if your goal is to differentiate it, can you do it with a roller? I remember Greg Lehman's analogy of uh, lengthening the, or sorry, who do you say? Lengthening the iliotibial band is like trying to fillet a chicken with a rolling pin. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but, so probably not. You're probably not yeah. lengthening or differentiating it. You're mashing it with a paint, with a roller, and in my view, uh, maybe that's okay. Except that if you just keep doing it and you keep irritating it, you keep something sensitized because it feels really intense and it has that kind of satisfying experience in the moment. Then that could be, you know, you could be keeping yourself in that situation, self-perpetuating pain. Yeah. Right. So, um, and the other one I want to call attention to, and this is, this is one that I sort of only a few years back became aware of as a prominent problem and actually had this issue myself um, and was kind of um, surprised to find the, the similarity and relevance. And this is uh, compression of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, which is a moderately small sensory nerve that goes across the, the uh, top part of the iliac or the anterior aspect of the iliac crest underneath the inguinal ligament and then supplies the skin over the lateral thigh, so directly over the iliotibial band. And it's pretty common to have compression of that lateral femoral cutaneous nerve from uh, you know, tight jeans, tight belts, or 
you know, uh, occupational, like, you know, a policeman wearing a heavy uh, belt with, you know, gun and holsters and all that kind of stuff. And you can compress that lateral femoral cutaneous nerve and get this dull, constant aching pain over the lateral thigh region. And then you try to go in and work that area. And that's not going to get results because that's not where the problem is occurring. The problem is occurring with uh, compression right across the anterior aspect of, of the hip. Uh, near the inguinal ligament. So, so you're talking uh, about right at the ASIS and, and below. And, uh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So the so, stuff uh, we wear could be, uh, a, a yeah, actually. Well, yeah. Right? And I, I found this, um, getting irritated for me from some, you know, genes that were relatively tight and I was sitting a lot cross-legged in these, uh, relatively, relatively tight fitting genes. And that's what was squeezing, my lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. And so um, I went through a, a period of saying, all right, I'm going to just, instead of, you know, wearing my jeans around all the time, I'm going to wear like sweatpants that are really loose and then do some gentle, easy kind of myofascial or dermoneuromodulating type of skin drag techniques over the top of that uh, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve to try to settle it down, you know, try to make it a little bit more mobile and decrease the compressive loading across that area. And, you know, found that to be like, the thing that worked after years and years of trying to poke in on my TFL and you know, work on trigger points around the area and found nothing really working with addressing other strategies for soft tissue involvement in there. Beautiful. So this skin drag was in the areas of sensitivity or were you tracing the nerve anatomy or how were no, you No, it was uh, following the nerve anatomy because the area of sensitivity yeah. was lateral thigh and down the thigh and where I was working mm -hmm. is right across the anterior thigh region, not at all where the pain was. Uh, mm -hmm. But where the nerve is most likely to be getting compressed there as it's passing under the inguinal ligament uh, across the anterior hip region. And that skin drag, I assume, is was really light. You weren't particularly yes, digging. Yes, very light. You just using your roller pin, rolling pin. Yeah. Or, no. no, it's just using fingertips and, you know, contacting the skin and pressing down in an inferior direction. Just with a kind of a press and hold for a few minutes, let go, and then do some gentle movement. Just try to do that frequently. So that in combination with decreasing the aggravating loads on there. Was there any immediate sensory response on your part as your own client? I mean, could you feel it when you had it? Or was you using your knowledge of anatomy to to mobilize those layers and you felt it later? I would say both of those things that were true. What I felt when I worked it is like, just this kind of sense of like, you know, that feels good. That just mm -hmm. feels like it. it's just a little bit less irritable when I do that. It's just a sensation of feeling like, like that's the direction that those things want to be um, slightly moved or encouraged. Uh, you know, so there was definitely a sense, uh, uh, interoceptive sense there, like this feels good, this feels right. Uh, you know, so yeah, that's great. So yeah. then you could go back to meditating with your tight jeans on. Exactly. Yeah. No but then I'll be, uh, the monks wear robes. Be, that's why monks wear robes, Whitney. That's right. Yes. Uh, they know about LFCN entrapment, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. And it's a good thing. I took off my tight jeans and my gun belt before I sat down today, because we've been sitting here for a while. I would be having that going on if I hadn't. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you got a couple other, uh, injury things too that uh, you were mentioning that might be also related here. What else we got there? Yeah, it's just worth bearing in mind the, the reasons, I kind of went through and brainstormed the reasons that I might go work this region of the body on a client. Mm -hmm. And uh, injuries, as you mentioned, is one. There's people that will fall on their sides or have a scraping mm -hmm. injury or a blow that can uh, sometimes tear, literally tear the um, that fascia lata, the, the wrapping that that band is a part of, and you'll feel 
like lumps and things like that in the tissue that can be really sensitized for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I, I often found that I can help that sensitivity with uh, direct work, thinking of glide and again, changing the brain's reaction to that sensation there. I use it again. This harkens back to my background as a rolfer. I use it for for uh, reduced lateral shift to the hips. So, like, let's say, and we go into this in a lot in one of our workshops in particular. Let's say someone takes a step and they shift their shoulders over that standing foot, as opposed to their hips. You could either be Marilyn. This is the chapter I wrote for Eric Dalton's book too. You could either be Marilyn Monroe and shift your hips over that standing foot. Or you could be John Wayne and shift your shoulders over there. Oh, interesting. Yeah? yeah. So John Wayne isn't lengthening his iliotibial band. He isn't allowing it to lengthen. Uh huh. And that's all Marilyn is doing. She's just getting really long there. So there, there is that continuum that I'm looking for, that ability to shift some mm -hmm. of your weight over the standing foot. Yeah. Uh, that I will work that side of the body. And it comes from that thinking of we're going to help it lengthen and yet my rationale for that has changed i'm thinking okay so the brain is allowing that structure or that line or that part of the body to adapt and to uh, allow the shift more than like say making it more more rubber bandish yeah making the body more willing to shift in that direction yeah let me uh, pose a question to you because of your specialization in working in sort of myofascial perspectives here you know there uh, is a a pretty um strong anatomical connection we found in fascial connective tissue between opposite side thoracolumbar fascia and gluteus maximus on the opposite side so when we think about the gluteus maximus transmitting a lot of tensile load into the iliotibial band yeah would it make sense to then focus let's say a person's you know left iliotibial band is bothering them would mm -hmm. it make sense to include addressing thoracolumbar fascia on the right side of the body because of the connectivity across those um uh, sides there yeah i can see the rationale i think in my style i tend to be more empirical than theoretical mm -hmm. rather than mapping out the line of where it would connect i tend to follow uh, my immediate uh perceptions and especially the client's reports of yeah. what what changes as we work along it but certainly mm -hmm. if i wasn't getting the results i wanted i might uh, you know, pull on some different theoretical models to think, okay, so where else farther up the body might this be connecting? Yeah. I, after you've crossed a couple of joints, uh, it's almost like in my mind, it's, it's less about lines and more about branching connections mm -hmm. because everything is so interconnected Yeah. that it's a little hard for me to predict like down in the leg, like say where exactly in the back this might be connected to. Yeah. Could, there, I will find places all the time. I think those connections happen, but it's a less predictable and it's just as likely to say that it's the same side as the opposite side or that it's around the front or who knows what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, so and I think you mentioned this to me once before or possibly in one of our earlier discussions to the, the, the idea of these sort of connections in all these different places. Um, you have a, a pretty significant degree of force dissipation anytime that there's, you know, something that branches off from that connection, that some mm -hmm. of that pulling is in distributed or, or dispersed to other adjacent tissues around there. So there may not be as strong of a transmission all the way from one you know, distal mm -hmm. location or distant location to, to those particular tissues there. Yeah. Maybe not as strong and certainly not as specific. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely exceptions. You'll find mm -hmm. like there's all those amazing stories about, oh, he worked my knee and my jaw was suddenly free. Yeah. You know, there's all there, those that really happen. But the mechanism is all is sometimes 
maybe up for debate and maybe not always replicable. Like yeah. now I'm going to go work everybody's knee who has a tight jaw. I don't know. I don't know if there's a yeah. question out for that. Right. Yeah, we so, tend to, uh, I know me and the way I look at things and a lot of other people will probably tend to um, default to looking at biomechanical explanations for something like that. And those things have frequently perplexed me in trying to figure mm -hmm. out what on earth is occurring there. And then maybe it's something as, you know, bizarre even as you know we had that uh, episode i can't remember which the number it was when we talked about the homunculus yeah. um and the relationship of the the brain's patterns of the body you know and maybe it's yes. just a homunculus relationship in there as opposed to a, a direct causal effect for a mechanical thing in there that's that's a narrative that works for me that seems to explain yeah. a whole lot and yeah. again whatever narrative gets you through the night or you know whatever it yeah. is that helps you doing your work and get the results you want right Bye. just don't build a system around it for everybody that you think is gonna, it's going to fit to everybody and create the you know the homunculi technique or something uh, like that Great. right yeah. oh boy i that's didn't right. think of that maybe i should maybe i should have done that before you just told me not to too bad that's right i won't yeah our secret i'm sure nobody else heard that yeah right, right. <laughs> So, so, all right, what else I, you got there? No, I think I covered it. Like how, where, and what, to what end do I work with the iliotibial band? Basically, it's that lateral hip shift, which is essentially femoral adduction, but it's mm -hmm. like, can the sh hip shift over the foot? Lateral knee pain, that's, that's my go-to, is that side of the leg there. And maybe the hip, those things you said could be mistaken for iliotibial band syndrome. I'll still work that region. Mm -hmm. Not assuming I got the mechanism, but more like I'm looking for a doorway into that complex. Yeah. I think, mm -hmm. is there something here I can find that shifts the client's experience of yeah. that sensitivity? Yeah. And I think that just sheds additional light on our kind of holistic perspective of looking at the body and just saying, you know, we're not just going to deal with these individual pieces here, but we want to look at the the overall person's experience of the intervention that we make and how does that change their, their feeling of what's going on in their body as well. That's a good, that's a good summary. I like yeah. it. Okay. Well, I'm going to put my three, three or so techniques into the handout. We're going to get some cool stuff from you. Uh, anything else you want to say in wrapping it up there, Whitney? Um, I think that's kind of a, a good dive into some uh, interesting dilemmas and things to ponder and think about with the iliotibial band. So um, I think, uh, you know, we're still learning a lot about it, uh, its function, how it works and how we can uh, intervene with things here. But there's some good, uh, good things to chew on, I think, when, you know, with what, we, what we've gotten into today. I, no, I appreciated some of those details that you helped fill in in my map as well. Uh, and it's fun to talk to you as always. I, I, uh, we mentioned the handout. Uh, I should have done a commercial sooner for our upcoming leg, knee, and foot principles online class that starts uh, early September. The right. first orientation, yeah, our first orientation is October, sorry, September 8th, but mm -hmm. you can start anytime up to September 15th or so and get the whole course, or it'll be available later by recording. But really, in, invite the listeners here to come join us in that course because we get to go through in detail. Uh, our set of advanced myofascial techniques for the leg, knee, and foot. And I, it's it's a hybrid live and slash online format. It's all done online, rather, but it's a hybrid of recorded and live real-time input with small faculty groups and lots of interaction as well. Great. So people can ask you questions and things like that in the mm -hmm. midst of the presentation. 
thing. That's right. In fact, that's been the richest part of it is the in-depth discussions we have time to get into in this format. We'll, we're going in for a weekend workshop. We would get through the material and give people great techniques, but now we're really finding we can unfold the principles or the ideas behind the, the work yeah. here. Yeah. That's one of the things that I love about that environment and too is, you know, the the flexibility of of time limitations. You can also, you know, because you're not just limited to the the 16 hours of the two days that you're together in many of these kind of situations, you can come back and ponder things and bring up other questions or things that come up. So um, That's right. you know, I hope to see some of these, you know, pandemic inspired um, hybrid models and, and experimental educational models that people have been working with for a while, um, hopefully expand some of our methods of, of doing educational things. Um, that's some of the, one of the things that's exciting to me of, of what's coming down the pike. Yeah, me too. Me too. So mm -hmm. I hope you join us in September. Yeah. Uh, I should also mention our uh, closing sponsor, and this is Handspring Publishing, who helped me publish the book I wanted to write. Even though I had offers from a large media conglomerate, I chose them, and they are run by four great people who love these great books about our field. And I'm still glad to this day, many years later, to choose them because their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written, especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring's Move to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including one with you, Till. So yep. head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for your discount. And we thank Handspring once again for their sponsorship of the podcast. And a thanks to all of our other sponsors as well. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, like uh, Till mentioned, we have a handout on this particular episode here and any other extras over there. So um, you can get links to that from uh, my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and Till, where can people find links to that from you? advancedtrainings.com, advanced-trainings.com, where actually we found that it works even with just advanced trainings, no dash. It goes to the same place. Oh, cool. If you got, yeah, if you got questions or things you'd like to hear about, just email us both at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. Just my name, Till Luca. What's yours, Whitney? And you can find me also on social under my name uh, at Whitney Lowe as well. And you can Follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, if you do drop a review over there, that does help other people find the show. So we really do appreciate that. And we want to say a thank you to all of our listeners and people who've been hanging out with us, listening to our discussion. I hope you're getting some good things from that. So uh, you can find us uh, those locations and then also wherever else you happen to be listening and uh, do share that and uh, tell a friend. And uh, of course, as always, if you are unable to find it in any of those locations, you can aim your underwater sonar dish at the South Pacific and you'll hear us emanating from the deep recesses of the Mariana Trench as well. We get we get like email from everywhere. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's great. Thanks for listening, everybody. So um, we will see you again in a couple of weeks and dive into some other uh, interesting things to chew on at that time. 